0: Hello everybody, Uh, it is good to be back, it is good um, to be standing here, it is a joy to be with you today and to be able to look into God's Word together. Um, If you don't know me, I think most of you do know me, but if you don't know me, my name is Cherie Leatherman and I've been teaching at this Bible study for, this is my 11th year. So, anyway, it's from the beginning. (laughs) So today we are going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 12, but before we dive in, let's open our time asking God for, for him to do his good work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, so thankful to be here, so thankful to be able to spend time together as women um, centered on you and on your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. And Lord, I ask that you would be with us tonight, that you would, um, your spirit would work in each one of our hearts, that your word would do its work in us, that your spirit would open our eyes, soften our hearts, so that we would be able to receive what you have for us today. We thank you, we praise you, we bless you, and we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Remember last week when Christy opened up the um, Bible study for us, she talked about the Old Testament being a little bit like a blueprint for the new. Um, it, the Old Testament gives us pictures or shadows, Hebrew says, paints a picture for us so that we can better understand what the New Testament about is all about, what the gospel is all about, what Jesus is all about. So I want to take a, a, just a few moments before we dive into chapter 12, to um, think through some of those blueprints that we've learned already. I want us to think for a moment about Israel's redemption. Now remember that Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that have been written by Moses to the people of Israel just before he's about to die, just before they're about to cross the Jordan River, led by Joshua into the Promised Land. And this sermon series reviews their history. It summarizes the law and gives the stipulations of the law. So remember with me who Israel is. They are the people God had chosen to set his love on. They are the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones God had redeemed with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm out of the iron grip of Pharaoh. So that's the blueprint. Now let's look up towards the structure. The people of Israel and their salvation, their redemption from slavery, are a shadow of the great redemption that was to come. This is the good news of the gospel. The salvation that God was working in the world from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, from before the foundations of the earth. This good news of the gospel, this salvation, that would come through his son, Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about this salvation in Romans chapter 6. He said, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. Just like Israel were slaves in Egypt, we are slaves to sin. And we have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So just in the same way that God set Israel free from slavery in Egypt with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, did he set us free from our slavery to sin with his mighty hand and with his outstretched arm. Now let's look back again at the print. Let's look again at Israel, the people of God. He brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the mountain of the Lord, to Mount Sinai, that they might worship him. He entered into covenant with them there, and he gave them the law that they would be a people that were set apart unto himself for his glory, for his purposes, as a light to the nations. They would be able to glorify God by obeying his law, with their lives fully devoted in love and worship to the God who had redeemed him. That's the blueprint. Now look at the structure. In the New Testament, the church, the people of God, are talked about in the exact same way that God spoke of Israel. Listen to the words of Peter in Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. He says, But you, meaning you, the church, the people of God, the people who have been redeemed out of slavery to sin, all of you as a collective people are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim with your mouths the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. He goes on to say a few verses down, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the pagans, the people of the land in which you live. Keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the same thing that Moses was saying to Israel. You are a light to the nations by your obedience to the word of God. You are shedding a light in the darkness. They will see your actions. They will hear your words. And even if they do not believe, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is the blueprint which helps us understand what Peter is saying in the New Testament. This blueprint points to the church. Now, let's look at the blueprint that is laid out in scripture for worship for the people of God. And this is what we're gonna be talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's look at verse one together. It says, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. These words are familiar words to us as we have been in Deuteronomy. Every single time that Moses opens up a new section, a new topic that he's going to be talking about, he opens it up with, these are the words. These are the statutes. These are the rules that the Lord has given me. You are to obey them. And Deuteronomy chapter 12 begins the next major portion of Moses' sermon. It's the biggest portion. It's, it goes from Deuteronomy 12 all the way through tw- chapter 26. It's a huge section, the vast majority of, of his teaching. And this, this portion is going to be s- containing the specific stipulations of the law. What we've looked at so far in Deuteronomy, he's summarized, made s- broad summary statements of the law. We've had the Ten Commandments. We're kind of a sum of the law. So now we're going to get where the rubber meets the road. How is the Ten Commandments going to be lived out in their context at that time period? And so this is the introduction and the introductory statement to the stipulations to the law. Now, the first thing that I want us to notice is the the topic, the thing that he starts out talking to us about is worship. And this shows us the priority of worship for the people of God. It is the very first thing he addresses. And that reveals to us that this is very important. It is the highest priority for the people of God. And this should come as no surprise to us. Because as we saw in the Ten Commandments, the very first four commandments had to do with worship. Worship of God, love of God. The Shema, which we also saw last semester, spoke of the fact that we were called to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. This is worship. It is the highest priority for the people of God. And now in Deuteronomy 12, all the way through to 17, he is addressing the worship of God. That is six chapters that have to do in some way with worship of of God. The worship of God is a high priority, the highest priority for the people of God. So what is worship? I think sometimes we get a little confused or we truncate what worship is, and we, we minimize it down to the gathered assembly on Sunday morning, the part where we sing songs, and we think that is worship and worship alone. But that is not what worship is. It includes that, but that is not the whole of worship. Um, at the resource online research, godquestions.org, they define worship in this way. It says, in the Bible, worship describes both a way of life And a specific activity. Praising, adoring, and expressing reverence for God, both publicly and privately, are specific acts of worship. In a broader sense, worship refers to an overall lifestyle of serving and glorifying God and reflecting his glory to others. Worship is all of life, everything we do everything we say, when we get up in the morning and we're brushing our teeth, it is an act of worship. All of our lives are to be lived to the glory of God, in the worship of God, loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Worship is God's idea. It's God's design. It's rooted in God. It is rooted in his creation of us. We were made by God to worship him. It is in our DNA. However, since the fall of man, our worship has become distorted. As fallen creatures, we begin to worship things or the created things, and not the creator of all things. So what the Lord is doing in his law and in Deuteronomy, in his grace to his people, he is reorienting our worship. He is reorienting the worship of his people. He is reorienting reorienting them to the who of worship and to the how of their worship. God, through Moses, makes it abundantly clear that we do not define the terms of worship. We do not decide how we want to worship God. Have you ever heard a statement similar to this? Well, you can worship God in that way, but I will worship him this way. This is how I worship God. I've heard it many times. But that's not worship. Well, it it is worship, actually. But it's not the worship of God. It is the worship of self. It is self-worship, doing things my way. It's false worship. So God defines the terms of worship and determines the way in which he is to be worshiped. And he does that through his word. The first thing I want to note, us to notice as we progress in the, in the text is the purity of the worship of the Lord God. Look with me at verse 2. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Destroy, tear down, dash in pieces, burn their asherim chop down the carved images, destroy the name out of that place. These are actions, active words. God is calling his people, when they enter into the land that he is giving them as their inheritance, to completely annihilate every other god from the face of that land, every other form of worship. So the gods are to be annihilated and the articles of worship are to be completely destroyed so that none of that will interfere with the worship of God. None of that will draw them away from the worship of God. There is purity in worship, it is worshiping God and God alone. Now today, if we bring it forward into today, we don't worship in the way of the pagans that, they, that did thousands of years ago. We don't have the ashram poles in our culture. We don't have the pillars. But we do have idols idols that take us away from the worship of the one true god anything good any created thing that takes precedence in our mind and in our hearts over the lord himself is an idol and scripture tells us that we need to tear down the idols that are in our lives, that we may worship God truly and purely. The purity of worship is to worship God alone. Look at verse 4. Purity in worship also involves not worshiping the true God in the way of pagans. Verse 4 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God, in that way. In what way? In the way of the pagans that lived in the land, in the way of those who idolaters, the unbelievers. Don't take Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh and use their means to worship their gods to worship the true God. God wants no remnants of false worship. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth, in the way that he has defined for that. And the way that we will not worship the Lord God in the way of the world is to be is to be guided, is to be led by the word of God and see what God desires and see how God has stated that he wants to be worshipped. He goes on to explain how he prescribes worship to the people of Israel. Verse 5 says... Instead of worshiping in that way, you seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God And you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord, your God, has blessed you. Moses describes what the Lord prescribes for his people in worship. It's not at all what was common in the ways of worship in the land that they were entering. For God himself is anything but common. There are three specific things that the Lord is prescribing here about his people's worship of him. First, they were go, to go to the place of his choosing. So the Lord talks about the place of worship. Next, they were to bring with them the specific sacrifices or the things that were holy due to the Lord. These were things that the Lord had chosen for them to bring. So there was a specific place, specific sacrifices. And finally, when they were there at that place with their sacrifices, they were to fellowship and rejoice in the presence of the Lord. So we're going to spend the rest of our time together, together looking at these three things more closely. Let's first look at the place of worship, and we're going to read continue on in reading um, past verses 8 through 14, the place where the Lord sets his name. Verse 8 says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing today. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. So let's pause just for a moment here. I want to focus on that phrase, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, because this is so important. This is so important. Moses is describing the people of Israel at this point in time in their lives as, as a people who were doing what was right in their own eyes. And he saying, when you get into the land... I don't want you to do that. You are not to do that. You are not to do what is right in your own eyes. Now this, as I was studying it this week, this made me flash back to our study in, in the book of Judges. Do you remember the book of Judges and how that turned out? By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, the people of Israel were so violent, so immoral, There was so much chaos, they were destroying each other, that if it had not been for the grace of God, they would have completely annihilated themselves. And what did the writer of Judges say about the people? He said they had done, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And here Moses is, hundreds of years before that time, warning the people. The people who lived in the period of Judges had the book of the law. They would have had this warning, and they chose to ignore it. And they chose to walk according to their own eyes. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk according to doing what is right in your own eyes? It means following your heart. It means doing what feels right. It means doing what seems right to you. But as the word of God teaches us, that is the path to death. Ultimately, doing what is right in our own eyes will always, every time I can guarantee you this, it will lead to death. May not be today, may not be tomorrow, may not be next year. But eventually, it leads us off the cliff. This is what James is saying when he, he warned in his, in his um, book. He says, um, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire or doing what is right in his own eyes. Then desire, when it has, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is a progression. It takes time, but eventually, every single time, when we follow our heart, when we follow our flesh, when we follow our own desires, we will walk straight off a cliff. So how do we avoid doing what is right in our own eyes? Well, the answer is in the Word of God. Verse 28, drop your eyes down with me, to, and let's read verse 28. Verse 28 says, Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. When you do what is good and right in the eyes of God. We have two eyes that we can look out of. We can look out of our own eyes and do what is right in our own eyes, or we can look out of God's eyes and do what is right in his eyes. One leads to death. One leads to life. Which will you choose? How do we know what is right in the eyes of God? It is in his word. He reorients us. He teaches us what is right in his eyes. And it's God's kindness and his graciousness to us, to his people, to his beloved children, that he would give us his word so that we might know. We wouldn't have to guess but we might know what is good and right in his eyes. So let's jump back into our text again. So now we know worship is not doing what is good and right in our own eyes, but what is good and right in, our, in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 10 says, But when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all of your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So the place that God puts his name is the pl- first prescription, the first way that God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. Now, how many times did you see in this chapter the place that God I will put my name, the place that I will choose? I counted at least five times he says that. When the Lord repeats things, we need to pay attention because when he repeats things in his word, he is emphasizing something for us. He wants us to pay attention, just like any of you mothers out there who's like repeating to your children. I've said this to you three times. I want you to hear what I'm saying. This is the Lord to us. I've said this to you five times. Pay attention. Pay attention. I want them to, he wants them to go to the place that he has chosen to set his name. So, what is so important about this place that he would put his name on it? I want us to try to understand the significance of what the Lord is saying and doing here. This is not just them going to a building that has the name of the Lord inscribed on the side of it when the lord says he is putting his name on a place he is putting himself there you cannot separate the lord god from his name his presence is going to dwell at this place he is saying to his people come to my presence come to the place where i dwell come to my house now this this people back in this context the children of israel When they heard about the Lord putting his name on a place that his presence would dwell with them, that is going to conjure up images in their mind of Eden. Because Eden, the Garden of Eden, is the first place that the Lord's presence dwelt with his people. And as a people since the fall, we have all been exiled from Eden. And the longing of our hearts is to be in Eden. And what God is beginning to unravel for his people and for us is the journey back to Eden. The journey back to be better than Eden. The place where the Lord dwells. We saw saw that he dwells in the tabernacle with them in the wilderness. The tabernacle was the tenth of the Lord. And it was kept in the center of Israel, in the center of the people. And God's presence would descend on the tabernacle. And ultimately, the temple would be that place where God's presence would dwell. And at this time in Israel's history, this was a literal place. This was a literal place that they would actually have to get up and travel to go to. Miles and miles and miles. They would have to take a journey to go to this place where the Lord dwells. But they were not just to go, they were also to go and take with them these articles of worship that they would bring to the place of the Lord's dwelling. Back up in verse 11, um, he says, you bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present. And all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord, they were to take these things and carry them with them and bring them with them. Verse 26 calls them the holy things that are due from you. All of these holy things were be- to be brought with them to the presence of the Lord, to be offered to the Lord as a sacrifice. So, what were, what defined or what, what made something holy? Well, let's read the rest of the chapter and see if we can discern what Moses is teaching them about what makes these articles, these meats, grains, offerings, holy. I'm going to pick up in verse 14, and then we're going to read 15 through the end of the chapter. But at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, So we're drawing a distinction here. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns, as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it. And let me just pause there for just a moment to do a little explanation on the clean and the unclean. We're going to be getting into that a little bit in the weeks to come. But in this cultural context, the people of Israel could be clean, or they could be unclean depending on their circumstances. If they came across a dead body, they were unclean, and they had to ceremonially become clean again. Before they could enter into the presence of the Lord, they had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. But what he's saying here in this context is that you can eat meat in your towns, whether you're clean or unclean, for dinner, basically. He's drawing a distinction between the common and the holy. All right, stay with me here. The unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and as of the deer. These are meats that are never offered as sacrifices. Verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or of the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution That you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servants and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. So he continues on, and he's repeating the same instructions, starting in verse 20, but further explaining things. Verse 20 says, When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, reminding them again of the faithfulness of God, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire, just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. And you shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, and all may go well, that all may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But, again, now we have the distinction again. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings, you shall take and you shall go to the place of the Lord's choosing and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Okay, there's a lot here. It's a little bit confusing, especially trying to bring it forward into our modern context where we're not familiar with the sacrificial system. We're not familiar with what he's talking about. But the bottom line of what Moses is teaching them within all of these verses, is to draw a distinction. He's drawing a distinction between the things that have been set apart as holy and the things that are common. So the things that have been set apart as holy, the things that God had commanded them in his word, in his law, that were to be given to him, the sacrifices, the tithes of their first fruits, the the burnt offerings, the firstborn, these things have been designated to the Lord. And are to be brought to the place of His dwelling, and not to be eaten in their towns as if they were common everyday meals. But the things that were not set apart to the Lord, they were allowed to eat anywhere they choose as much as they wanted. Does that make sense? So he's beginning to lay a foundation that we're going to begin to continue to see as we go through chapters 12 through 17 of what is defined as holy and how something is holy. We're gonna be seeing holy days, holy festivals. And ultimately, Moses is teaching them that they are a holy people. The holy things are common things that are being dedicated to God for his service. And he's teaching them to understand and make a distinction between the holy things and the common things. So within these holy things that were to be brought to the Lord is the sacrificial system. He doesn't define it here, but he does in other places of the law. And so the assumption is that the people who are hearing his sermon, his teaching in Deuteronomy, know exactly what he's talking about when they hear the words, burn offerings, when they hear the, the, the words about the grain offerings, And so I want to spend just a minute or two here to define a little bit about what these sacrifices are all about. The first one that we're going to talk about um, is the burnt offering. And you can find out more information about the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1 and also in chapter 6. Now the burnt offering um, describes the requirement um, that the people were to bring to the Lord a bull, a sheep, a goat. It would have to be a male. It had to have No defect in it, completely flawless. And this offering would be brought to the presence of the Lord, to the tabernacle or later to the temple, and it would be killed at the entrance. The blood would have been drained and sprinkled on the altar. And it was the offering that provided the atonement for people, sins as the worshiper would come into the presence of the Lord, bringing his burnt offering, he was acknowledging his sin. He was acknowledging his sinful nature, that he was separated to God because of his sin. And his offering to God was a request, a recognition and a request for renewed fellowship with God. Now, this burnt offering would be utterly consumed on the altar. None of it was to be eaten. It was completely consumed. And the odor would would go up to the heavens as a fragrance, a fragrant offering to God. And you notice that the blood was poured out. And God spoke quite a bit in our passage about the blood. Don't eat the blood. Don't drink the blood. Don't have anything to do with the blood. So what is this? What what is the significance of this? In this context, the blood is sacred. See, Scripture actually teaches us this. Um, In in Genesis, it tells us this. Um, Job tells us this. Psalm tells us this. That the blood is sacred. The blood represents life. Life is in the blood. God question says it this way. The blood of the animal was never to be treated as common food. It belonged to God, who is the giver of life. Thus, the blood of animals had to be drained and offered to God on the altar. The blood, the life, belongs to God. They were never to treat it as common. They were never to eat of it or drink of it. It was always to be poured out. We also know from the word of God that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's significance in the blood. The second offering I want to um, tell you about is the grain offering. And this was an offering of wheat and barley, the first fruits of their crops. It was also um, an offering of wine. And this offering would be offered after the burnt offering. And the purpose of the grain offering that they were to bring to the presence of the Lord was to acknowledge God and his provision. His provision and to give thanks to him for his provision. Now think about what God has provided for them. He's provided for them the sacrifice for sins. Embedded within the law, don't miss this, but embedded within the commandments and the law is the sacrifice for them breaking the law. Is that not evidence of a good and gracious God? The perfect requirement that they would obey the law perfectly, he knew that they would not be able to do it. And so he already, in advance, provided something for them. And so their response after they offer the the atonement offering is to acknowledge his provision of atonement and his daily provision of their lives. And give thanks to God. The third offering is the peace offering. And this is so beautiful. Because of atonement, they are able to offer a peace offering. And this is a little bit different. The worshiper would offer, after the other two offerings, an unblemished animal from his herd and various grains or breads. And he would bring this to the the worship, to the place of the Lord's name, the place of the Lord's presence. And this offering would be offered, but not consumed. In essence, the Lord would give back the meat. And they would sit at the table of the Lord and feast in beautiful peace and fellowship. Because their sins had been atoned for. This peace offering is how they can rejoice. This is what it's talking about when it says, eat there and rejoice. All of you, the men, the women, your children, the slaves, the free, the Levites, eat and feast at the table of the Lord. How different is this than the pagan worship of the day? Now again, we have to try to jump back thousands of years to understand that. But the pagan gods were always demanding from the people they were doing and working and slaving in order to appease these gods. Think with me back to the story of the prophet Elijah in the book of Kings, where he was going up against the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that encounter? And they were pleading with the prophets of Baal to rain fire down onto the altar. And they had to dance, and they were going 24 hours a day, and they were cutting themselves and doing all sorts of things to try to get a response out of these idols, these these false gods. The false worship of the day consumed people. It took from them. It enslaved them. But here is the Lord God Asking his people to bring out of their blessing. Did you catch that in the text? It says, bring out of what I have blessed you with. He's asking them to bring out of the blessing. This, his offerings, these sacrifices are out of the overflow of what he had already given to them. They weren't bringing these offerings In order to get from him, they were bringing them because he had already given to them. He blesses them first. He provides for them first, providing for their daily needs, providing for their daily spiritual needs. And they come in worship to the presence of God out of his provision. And his provision, and he he gives even back to them. They get to eat at his table drink from his cup, there in his presence, rejoicing and giving thanks. This is the worship of God. Now, this is just a blueprint. It's a blueprint that's pointing us to a greater reality. So let's lift our eyes and look for a few minutes at the end here to the building at which this blueprint is pointing us. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4 regarding worship, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Hear what he's saying. No longer will we need to go to Jerusalem to worship and be in the presence of God. Because of Jesus, we will now worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is taking the blueprint, the place of worship, and revealing what it pointed to. It pointed to himself. The place of worship is no longer a place, but it's a person. In Jesus, all of the blueprints for worship come together beautifully. He is the place where the Lord God has put his name. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the place of the presence of God. Not only is he the place that we go to, but he was the atoning sacrifice so that we could go into his presence. Colossians continues on and says, Through him, through Jesus, he reconciled to himself all three things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood, by the blood of his cross. When Jesus was on that cross, he was consumed. By the wrath of God, he became our atonement, our sacrifice in our place. Condemned, he stood. Now there is no longer an atonement sacrifice needed to be brought to enter into the presence of God. It is Jesus himself who is the atonement sacrifice. And not only that, he is the one whose blood was spilled on our behalf. Listen to what Matthew says. And he took the cup, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many of the forgiveness of sins. That blood that was poured out on all those altars all those years ago was actually pointing to the blood that was going to be poured out by Jesus himself for the forgiveness of sins. That blood never saved the people. That atonement never saved them. But those things were pointing to the one who would save them, the Lord Jesus himself. These are the blueprints. This is the reality. Jesus is the reality that all of Scripture Is pointing to. So, how do we worship now? How do we worship God according to His words? We go to the place His name is pleased to dwell. We go to Jesus. We don't bring bulls or animals to make atonement for our sin, but instead we go to Him and we receive Him. We take Him into ourselves and receive the sacrifice that He made on our behalf. We come to him, the place of worship, and the object of our worship. And in view of God's mercy, we offer then ourselves back to him in thankfulness as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And finally, we get to fellowship, rejoicing with our God. We now have peace with God because of Jesus. We have his presence through his spirit now dwelling in us. And we can fellowship with him in spirit and in truth. Eating at his table, drinking from his cup. This is communion, sacraments as we gather with the people of God, we, when we take the, the bread and the wine and we eat and we drink of it, we are communing, we are feasting at the table of the Lord. In some ways, we are eating and receiving the sacrifice that he made for us in a tangible way. And when we spend time in community, feasting at his word, In Bible studies, in small groups, individually, we are fellowshipping with our Lord and with our Savior. And we rejoice in his presence, giving thanks for his great salvation. Hebrews, I want to close with this verse in Hebrews. that says, Through him, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for Jesus, the reality with which all of your word is pointing us to. Lord, I pray that we would continually be amazed at him, that we would continually be drawn to him, that we would continually um, feast at his, the table of his word, that we would continue to grow in our relationship with him. I pray that we would rejoice, rejoice in this great salvation that you've given to us. Pray that you would continue to do your good work in us, changing us, molding us, shaping us into the image of your son through by your spirit and through the word. I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus, amen.